This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Hi, Jen White here. Before we start the show, the end of the year is coming up and we're reflecting a bit here at 1A. We've loved bringing you shows about pretty much everything in 2023, from interviews with your favorite authors and celebrities to going in-depth on the latest news stories. We've poured our heart into every show, and we're excited about everything we'll dig into in 2024, hopefully with your financial support. This is where we want to say a big thank you to our 1A listeners and anyone listening who already donates to public media. Your support makes independent and accurate journalism possible. We prioritize facts, context, and different perspectives, and we're beholden to no one except you, the public. And to anyone out there who isn't a supporter yet, right now is the time to get behind the NPR network, especially with the NPR newsroom gearing up for an important election year. Supporting public media now takes just a few minutes and makes a real difference in what's possible moving forward. Make a tax-deductible donation now at donate.npr.org slash 1A. And thanks. Every day, we're asked to trust in something. Trust that our jobs will pay us on time. Trust that our loved ones will come home in the evening. Trust that our apartment won't suddenly collapse on us, that our neighbors won't steal our mail, that our kids will be safe at school. But what happens when that trust is broken? According to one 2013 study from the Journal of Couple and Family Psychology, 60% of couples cited a partner's unfaithfulness as the reason for their divorce. And trust isn't just an issue in our relationships. A 2022 Gallup poll found that Americans' trust in major institutions like the Supreme Court and Congress was at a historic low. How can trust be repaired once it's broken? And why is it so easy to lose in the first place? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Back with more in just a moment. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com AI for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. 
REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Joining us for this conversation is Peter Kem. He's a professor of management and organization at the University of Southern California. He's also the author of How Trust Works, the science of how relationships are built, broken, and repaired. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jen. It's a pleasure to be here. Also with us is Alexandra Solomon. She's a licensed clinical family and relationship psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. Her forthcoming book is Love Every Day, 365 Relational Self-Awareness Practices to Help Your Relationship Heal, Grow, and Thrive. Alexandra, it's great to have you back. So good to be with you again, Jen. Peter, let's start with the basics. How do you define trust? Well, uh, I'm going to offer a a somewhat complicated definition, but maybe we could break it down so people can digest it more easily. It it is uh, essentially a willingness to make oneself vulnerable in situations involving risk um, based on positive expectations of the other. So uh, that uh, entails that there must be some uh, risk involved um, rather than a situation where there's no prospect of harm. And it also uh, entails that you are psychologically predisposed to, 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 to engage in that behavior, to make yourself vulnerable, rather than uh, just engage in the behavior uh, itself. And so that's, uh, that gets to the need to understand our perceptions of one another. And, uh, and, and so those perceptions have to be positive in order for us to be willing to uh, engage in that, that trust. Here's a message we got from a member of the 1A Text Club. My father always raised me to trust people unequivocally. Trust was to be given to everyone simply because we are all human beings. He was an OBGYN in a small town in West Virginia. After years of establishing his practice, he went to open a larger office. The office manager he hired turned out to be an embezzler, a liar, and a cheat, and almost destroyed my family. But even in the face of all of this, my father never wavered. People should be offered your trust from the very beginning simply because. Peter, in your book, you talk about how trust doesn't start at zero, as we often think it does, or or that it's something people have to earn from us. When we meet a stranger, typically, we do experience a level of trust immediately. Where does that initial trust come from? Well, there are three sources of that initial trust. Uh, First, uh, there are societal reasons why we might trust, and that gets to the laws, uh, norms, and uh, other expectations we might have. So basically, uh, our belief that uh, our communities uh, and society at large uh, will encourage trustworthy behavior, that those who don't uh, behave that way will uh, wind up uh, caught and, and, and punished and so on. Uh, the other uh, source is our uh, own disposition. So some of us are more inclined to trust than others. Uh, and so there's variation on that front. And the third uh, factor is uh, that gets to the things we normally think about when we think about trust. And that gets to the, the cues that we can get from other people. Um, do they come from our same town? 
did, did we go to the same school? Uh, what do we think about them, uh, their relational style? How do they look? And so on. So there are all sorts of cues that we get uh, right from the start that convey uh, lots of uh, signals. They convey a lot about whether or not uh, we should trust them or not. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of those signals tend to be noisy. And, and so that's, that's part of the problem. When you say those signals are noisy, what do you mean? Well, uh, you know, it takes a while to determine whether or not someone has uh, the characteristics that we might consider important uh, to, to uh, really rely on them. Um, and yet uh, we don't have the time to engage in that scrutiny uh, in a meaningful way. So we rely on these quick cues uh, that... Uh, are often helpful uh, in, in the sense that they encourage us to engage in that initial trust in others. But those, those signals are not perfect, and so sometimes uh, we can be led astray. Alexandra, how much of our initial willingness to trust someone is about the cues they are knowingly or unknowingly sending us, and how much is, of it is about us projecting certain assumptions onto them. So maybe, as, as Peter said, oh, they, they're from our town or, or they look like us. And so we say, well, this is, this is who I am as part of this group. So I'm going to project onto you that this is how you are as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there there probably is something to both of those elements. I, of course, take this immediately to a dating and intimate relationship context. That's where I always go on these things. I'm thinking about, you know, when, when somebody is discerning uh, trustworthiness on a first date, for example. And I, I do think quite a bit of it is based on our own experiences. If I've had the experience five times of being ghosted, you know, somebody starts off with me and then they just kind of disappear into, into nowhere, I'm going to have a bit of a higher bar. So I think we are very, very much experience-driven. And some of us come by our trust issues, you know, from experience and from hurt and from pain. And so those are protective measures that we bring in. And I love in that OBGYN story that, you know, this person's father even after being hurt, you know, refused to let go of that dispositional quality that, that he had, you know, throughout his life. And it's, it would be interesting to know kind of how his children have reckoned with it. You know, do they end up on the other side of the spectrum and they trust no one? Or are they kind of somewhere in the middle honoring the legacy of their dad and his trustworthiness while blending it in with perhaps some self-protection that they, they never saw their father, you know, inhabit? Well, Peter, I want to make sure we address the fact that there are different levels of trust. You might trust your Uber driver to get you from your house to the airport. You wouldn't necessarily turn your kid over to them and say, hey, will you babysit for me? Because they're they're a complete stranger. What are the different levels of trust we live with? Right. So uh, the kind of relationship and the level of risk can make an enormous difference. So uh, in your own example, you know, uh, we can easily trust an Uber driver. The, the, the downsides uh, may be relatively low, but if we have someone take care of our children, the stakes are much higher. Um, and, and, and so that certainly makes a difference. Uh, from, from a scientific standpoint, uh, I would put that in the category of risk. So some situations are riskier than others. So even if your trust in that person is the same, the, the level of risk may affect your behavior. Uh, but uh, 
to your point, you know, there the type of relationship matters. So, uh, the the scientific literature has identified as many as ten different characteristics that that are relevant for our assessments of trustworthiness. Uh, and some of those characteristics will be more important in some situations than others. So uh, I will trust, uh, you know, what's important to me in a surgeon, for example, might be competence that may be more important than uh, receptivity, whereas uh, in a spouse, loyalty might be the most important characteristic. So certainly the type of relationship matters in determining what we consider important in uh, determining whether or not we should make ourselves vulnerable or not. Alexandra, practically speaking, how often are we entering into relationships thinking about it from that risk perspective? I'm taking a risk by forming a bond with this person? I don't, even if it's not conscious, it is, it is there. And I think that's so often what fuels our anxiety. You know, there's sort of like, whether it's a friend or a potential intimate partner, the feeling of liking somebody, you know, that excitement and that enthusiasm often sits right next to anxiety and fear. And I think that's, that anxiety and fear kind of highlights the fact that we know at some level we are taking a risk. We are making an investment and, and there's risk. Always. Coming up, trust is important for any healthy relationship, but when it's an institution, not a person that's breached your trust, what can be done to fix it? Back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics. With vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics. Now on Amazon. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Here's another message we got from a member of our text club. My husband broke my trust so many times, and not even with other women. I told him something extremely emotional that tore my family apart and asked him not to tell anyone. He died at 40 in 1991. One day, my young teenagers came home and told me they knew why my one family member had disowned the rest of us. I was crushed. It made me wonder if we would stay together if if my husband had lived. Alexandra, how important is trust in a relationship? Is it possible to have a healthy relationship if if the trust is not intact? No, it really isn't. I mean, that's a pretty, no, it really is not. A a relationship without trust is incredibly heavy and laborious because trust 
operates as an energetic shortcut, as we've been saying, you know, so far in this conversation. It's like, if I don't trust you, I hear your words, but then I wonder about the subtext and I wonder whether your tone matches your words. And then I line up your words against what I feel inside of my body and maybe the outside research I'm doing to verify that you were where you said you were. It's an awful lot of effort in an ongoing relationship. And so I think that when there's been a breach, you know, it really is a fork in the road. And either there's a process of actively working to rebuild or there needs to be a process of letting the relationship go because existing kind of, you know, indefinitely in a place where there's not an active process of repair is exhausting. Peter, you talked about the risk we take when we trust someone. What do we get out of choosing to to put ourselves in that place of vulnerability? Well, the evidence uh, is pretty clear in, uh, in demonstrating that those who are inclined to trust wind up better off. Uh, we wind up happier uh, and uh, more successful. Uh, we attract uh, others. Uh, we become more attractive relationship partners uh, uh, by both trusting and non-trusting people. So there are lots of benefits to trusting, to being able to take that risk. And one of the reasons why is that we, through trust, can actually encourage people to become more trustworthy. Uh, We create a self-fulfilling prophecy through that expectation. And so uh, even arbitrary uh, uh, reasons to trust others can actually create a situation where they are indeed uh, trustworthy as a result of feeling like this trust is not something to be exploited. Most of us see this as a precious resource to preserve for the future. We want to prove them right. But sometimes it makes sense not to trust someone. Young children should absolutely not go anywhere with adults they don't know. When is distrust a good thing, Peter? Well, I I think it gets to some of the things Alexandra uh, was bringing up. You know, if if you believe that these kinds of uh, violations are going to be serious, uh, they haven't given you a reason to believe that that behavior will change, Uh, it doesn't really make any sense to engage in that trust. You are setting yourself up for failure. So uh, a lot of my work has been focused on really discerning, well, how do we make these judgments and are we doing it properly? And it turns out uh, there are all sorts of biases in how we make these assessments that can make an enormous difference in whether or not we are willing to trust others again or not. Give us an example of, of those biases. Well, uh, yeah, one of the things uh, that uh, my research has uh, found is that of, you know, of the, the many characteristics we consider with regard to trustworthiness, two are the most important across situations and relationships. Uh, those include competence and integrity. Uh, but we weigh information about competence and integrity very differently. So if someone commits a mistake or doesn't know something, and so that's the reason for a violation, we are inclined to to believe that that problem can be corrected. And so trust is something that can be readily repaired or or more easily repaired with an apology, uh, some sort of uh, penance or, 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 or other remedial measure. But if we believe it's a matter of integrity, if they intended to do something, uh, that, that violates what we consider important, uh, then it's almost like 
touching the third rail of relationships. And uh, it is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to repair those situations. Alexandra, what's the difference between broken trust and low trust? I think, well, it's certainly what Peter's talking about in terms of competence and integrity. You know, when I think about that example, which just like hurts my heart about the reading the diary, you know, I think it's it's all about the repair. It's all about what happens next. You know, it's about is the person who breached trust willing to say, I screwed up, your pain makes sense, and do that really important self-reflection of what was going on inside of me, that my behavior was out of alignment and out of integrity and not the person that I want to be in this world, versus a sense of entitlement of, of course, you know, of course I'm allowed to do that, and you're overreacting. That pathway is is not ever going to lead to repair. If the person who breached trust kind of doubles down and triples down and says, you're overreacting, not a big deal, you know, you're too sensitive, that is not a path forward. There needs to be a measure of accountability, which doesn't mean shame and I'm an awful person, but does mean saying, huh, I wonder why I did that. What's going on inside of me that I behaved in a way that leads this other person to feel unsafe around me? That doesn't feel good, you know, to, to, to me. It's not, it's not worth it to me. Peter, what kinds of things lead to low or broken trust? Because, of course, there are the obvious things. Someone may lie to you. But what are some of the more nuanced ways trust gets broken? Well, uh, it turns out that we are highly sensitive to any kind of signal that uh, the uh, someone else may be untrustworthy. So we are not only quite willing to trust uh, initially, uh, but we're also quite sensitive to the prospect that they may do us harm. So even unfounded allegations uh, from an unknown, uh, unknown source uh, w- can be enough to lower our trust in others. Uh, and so uh, it's rather easy. And then uh, going back to something that was discussed earlier in the show, you know, we, we can differ in terms of our sensitivity to uh, these kinds of incidents. So we have, based on our past experiences, so some of us uh, will have uh, been primed to be uh, quite sensitive to certain kinds of situations uh, and gray area behavior that uh, can lead us to conclude that the other person's untrustworthy, whereas others might give them the benefit of the doubt. And so, uh, you know, there, there's certainly individual differences on that front. Here's a message from Carolyn. I hope you'll also address that when someone you gave total trust to hurts you and you lose trust in them, you also lose trust in your own ability to determine who can be trusted in your life. Alexandra, how does losing trust in someone or something affect us mentally and emotionally? I'm so glad this point is being brought up because I think that is, you know, in any given moment, about half of my caseload of couples I'm working with is in recovery from infidelity. And that is one of the pieces that must be addressed is the person who's been cheated on. It is certainly the anger and the heartbreak and the sadness they feel about their partner, but it is also that piece about that sense of self that is shifted. And so an awful lot of our work is around self-compassion, you know, for having trusted. And so I think about trust and risk and self-compassion kind of existing in this triangle. And so there does need to be um, that gentleness with oneself that, that we trust not because we're fools, but we trust because it's essential. It's essential for saving ourselves the exhaustion of having to vet every single thing that everybody says. And it's essential to feeling, you know, that human-to-human connection. And as, 
you know, as Peter's research is highlighting, it, it is more often, it is, there are rewards to trusting. So that, that gentleness with self is essential. How do you navigate an imbalance of trust, though, when if someone's been wounded and so they're less inclined to trust, so you've got one party that does trust the other, but the trust isn't reciprocated? You know, if I come into a relationship with you and I have a, that, that hypersensitivity to uh, not trusting or, you know, I'm more sensitive than you are to breaches of trust, what I can do is remind you, Jen, thank you so much for being more transparent than perhaps you had to be in other relationships because of my wounds, because of my history. So I can thank you and acknowledge that you do go that extra mile because you know that I'm tender. And I think that you can feel that sense of pride that you take that extra step to ensure that I feel safe, which is not the same thing as walking on eggshells, right? That's also exhausting, feeling like you have to walk on eggshells because I you know, have a history of trust issues. But for you to recognize that sense of pride of, what it means for you to be demonstrative about your own integrity to help me uh, experience that kind of earned security that like my shoulders drop when I'm with you, even though other people haven't treated me well, I get that experience of, you know, of, of feeling like you, your trustworthiness matters. Peter, we've mostly talked about what trust looks like between people, but I want to talk about trust people have in institutions. As we mentioned earlier, a 2022 Gallup poll found that Americans' trust in major institutions like the Supreme Court and Congress is historically low. What makes us trust these institutions in the first place? Well, uh, I think uh, historically they have served uh, an important role in society and uh, in the past uh, that our experiences with those institutions has been positive. I think part of what's also helped us maintain trust in those institutions in the past is that our, the audience of, for those institutions, we in, in society, uh, was less polarized than it is now. And so we are in a situation where uh, when an institution isn't doing what we would like it to do, uh, then we qu very quickly make this attribution that they lack integrity. And so if we get back to the issue that I raised before, uh, whether a, a violation is a matter of competence or integrity, we are much more inclined to make the, the latter attribution in these kinds of situations when we're viewing these institutions, uh, navigating these difficult situations, um, and uh, the CDC and, and, and PEEP, people, public figures, and so on. Uh, and this gets to another important wrinkle in this puzzle. How do we make this distinction between competence and integrity? Uh, we've talked about, at the relational level, you know, incidents where someone might be uh, have cheated or, or, or done something that is cl more clearly in the integrity realm. But a lot of violations uh, are much more complicated. They can entail elements of both competence and integrity. Uh, they, they may be in this squishy gray area, uh, but we don't often go through a careful assessment of these situations to understand how they arose. Instead, we make knee-jerk reactions. We sort of rely on our gut to make this uh, the, 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 the uh, attribution that it is a matter of integrity. And as soon as we do that, uh, then 
it, it becomes a very difficult situation. Even apologies and attempts to show remorse for what happened, in our minds, once we see that kind of response for an integrity violation, we just see that as confirmation that they're guilty. Uh, we don't really put much faith in those signals of remorse. Uh, and so one of the, the keys for us uh, in society and in relationships and any kind of trusting situation where something has gone wrong is to uh, go through that kind of critical thinking that the first uh, 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 person in, in your series of recordings uh, mentioned. We need to scrutinize these incidents much more carefully than we're inclined to do because we often do it in a way that uh, that guarantees that trust won't be repaired. One of you shared this. In 1978, I met my soulmate. Unfortunately, I was married with two kids at the time. Growing up, my father was an abusive alcoholic who had no sense of reality and taught my siblings and I to embellish all forms of truth. Sixteen years later, my marriage ended. It was another five until my soulmate and I were reunited. But my embellishing continued, and in February 2020, she said she could no longer trust me. We're divorced. I was ashamed of who I'd become. Now at 73 years old, I sit most days in my chair in the dark hiding, waiting for the pain to go away. We're going to head to a quick break. Back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com NPR. Let's get back to the conversation with a message we got from one of you. I'm a Lutheran pastor, and trust is very important in my job. But recently, I had a major breach of trust among colleagues in the ministry. This has left me wondering if church work is still my calling. I'm going to talk about trust repair. Alexander, you know, we're talking about trust from both an interpersonal perspective and also from the perspective of trust in institutions. But at the interpersonal level, what is necessary to repair trust when it's been broken? It's, it is repairing trust is, is a dimmer switch. It's not an on-off switch. It's a, it's a practice, and there's no getting around the fact that it takes repeated experiences, like micro doses of safety and reliability and integrity for trust to rebuild. And I think that's really difficult because the person who's, who has done harm is really eager, you know, to feel like they are back in their partner's favor. And the one who's been hurt is really eager to, to stop hurting as badly as they are. And so um, one thing is patience. What the research has found, the interpersonal research has found, is that the really key ingredient is the willingness of the person who's done harm to be sort of soft and open and accessible rather than defensive and eye-rolly and minimizing. So that availability is important because the person whose trust has been breached is going to have 
triggers. They're going to get activated. Even, even when there is not anything in this moment to be activated about, there's the song that reminds them of what, you know, the day that the breach of trust was disclosed, or there's the restaurant that might be somewhere near the restaurant where something, ha- you know, all of those little reminders. And when those happen, what's essential is for the person who's been hurt to be able to say, oof, I'm having a really difficult moment. And for the person who's done harm to say, I'm here, I'm here. What do you need? Do you need a hug? Do you need space? You know, want to go for a walk? So that repair is interpersonal. And the person who's been hurt, you know, needs to be able to bring their hurt forward. And the person who has done harm needs to be able to say, okay, I'm here with you, even as you're hurting. That's really, really essential. And if you're on the side of uh, your trust has been broken, someone's harmed you, how do you communicate to that other person, this is what I need from you to repair this relationship? It's, I think it's very difficult. I think that's a very tall order to ask somebody who's been hurt to be able to articulate clearly. So it's a lot of trial and error. And one thing that's so difficult, I remember working with a couple where there had been uh, you know, a, a sexual breach, somebody had cheated on somebody, and they so desperately wanted to repair, but they were a long distance couple. And so the one who was hurt didn't have this thing that is so important, which is just experiences of my body feeling safe and relaxed near your body. Because we are, you know, words matter, but it's that felt sense, the kind of vibe we get that's really essential. And so I think the person who's been hurt can say things like, it would help me if you would you know, share your location with me, not forever, but for a while. It would help me if you would be proactive and ask me how I'm doing. But it is also, there's also something that's almost like, you know, hard to put into words about what I need is my body to feel relaxed near your body. And so actually often with couples, part of what's helpful is experiences of joy and play and connection because those little experiences kind of run counter to the pain and they are oftentimes as essential as the processing of the pain, the apology, like those kind of counter examples of, all right, I feel pretty good, you know, near you. And those are little deposits in the bank account of trust as well. So that's on the interpersonal side. But Peter, when we're talking about broken trust and institutions, what does that repair work look like? I, I think uh, at the institutional level, uh, you know, in, in some ways it's not that different from the uh, challenges we have repairing trust at the interpersonal level. You know, it, it's ultimately about how we weigh matters of guilt and redemption. Uh, and, and the problem with those assessments is that we don't have a window into the other person's soul. Uh, and likewise, we don't have real uh, insight into the inner workings of an institution. And so we are using proxies uh, to, to get a sense of, are they repentant enough? Uh, do, do we feel like uh, they've done enough to correct the harm? And that's always going to be a noisy and skewed process. Um, I I like the uh, bank account metaphor that Alexandra uh, brought up because we do use this kind of bank account approach in in terms of how we gauge whether someone has integrity or not, uh, is is a good person. Uh, We believe that our good 
acts add to the account, our bad acts uh, subtract from the account. Uh, no, very few of us strive to be saints. Uh, we we instead strive to be good enough to look at ourselves uh, in the mirror. And, and well, if that approach is what we use, it turns out we we weigh the goods and bads quite differently based on whether we are evaluating ourselves or others. When we evaluate others, uh, we don't weigh the good and bad equally. Uh, instead, we see we can have a single bad act by someone else overwhelm all the good they might have done in the past, uh, and and they themselves may you know be surprised to discover that that's happened because they are seeing the good and bad as as equally important in how this calculus is done. Um, and so this, this can lead the trusted, uh, the mistrusted person and the person who is evaluating that person to have very different assessments about how much repair is even needed. So we got this question from Shelley who asks, how can I learn to live with myself when I lost the trust of someone who has died and I can't apologize? Alexandra, any advice? Oh, wow. I, I think it goes back to self-compassion. I would really want this person to understand what happened in their own past. You know, what are the kind of wounds and blind spots that they brought in to the relationship that led them to this less than wonderful behavior and kind of connecting the dots and creating a story, not that lets ourselves off the hook or that excuses our behavior, but a story that contextualizes our behavior. And I would want her to remember that she is more than her, you know, quote unquote, worst behavior, that there's there's more to her than that. And I think that um, it's very difficult to kind of find that peace when, when there's no repair possible. There can still be no repair possible, even if the person is living, but certainly if they've passed away, you know, there really is not a, re- a repair, but there is, I think, forgiveness of self and there is giving oneself the experience the opportunity to be in integrity and kind of like, you know, every act in, in integrity then kind of cushions, you know, the, the blow of that one time they were out of their integrity. We got this email from Anne who says, I learned many years ago that people are human and eventually someone will break your trust. Choosing to trust is knowing that you can trust yourself to deal with it when that break in trust happens, knowing that you will make the best choice as to when to work through it and when to walk away and knowing that you will eventually be okay again. Knowing myself frees me to choose to trust others without reservation. And thanks for that message. I mean, Peter, are you hopeful on the other side of writing this book that the the broken trust so many have in, in institutions that it that it can be repaired? Do you see a space for the kind of conversation and dialogue that, that you're describing? I am a pragmatist when it comes to these issues. Uh, my source of hope comes from the fact that we have encountered these kinds of issues before in other spheres. Uh, we have a lot of management labor strikes that are going on right now. We ha- we've had international uh, crises and conflicts. And what typically happens is that different sides will resort to domination as the first choice because they think that they can get their way. Uh, but eventually what happens uh, in many of these instances is that the 
the different sides realize that they're dug in and they're not making any progress. They're not able to get their way. And it's only through that recognition that they're in a painful stalemate that they become open to the dialogue that is necessary for a real reconciliation. And Alexandra, in just a, a sentence or two, any final guidance to those in the process of repairing trust? Just consistency. Consistency, not perfection. None of us are ever going to be perfect, but being consistent and being willing to repair and apologize. That's Alexandra Solomon. She's a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. Her forthcoming book is Love Every Day, 365 Relational Self-Awareness Practices to Help Your Relationship Heal, Grow, and Thrive. Also with us, Peter Kim, a professor of management and organization at the University of Southern California. He's the author of How Trust Works, the science of how relationships are built, broken, and repaired. Peter Alexandra, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Let's talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the NPR Wine Club. NPR Wine Club members have contributed over $1.5 million to helping create a more informed public. B21. Join the charge at nprwineclub.org podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the LifeKit podcast from NPR.